You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen, and I have ADHD. And when people learn this fact, they love to give me advice. It's impressive how quickly someone can take the conversation from, yeah, I have ADHD, to, have you ever tried the Pomodoro technique? I hate the unsolicited advice and those stupid tomato timers so much. But when I get advice from someone else who actually has ADHD, that's a different story. A few months ago, I was talking to a friend with ADHD, and I told her that I have trouble getting ready in the morning. When I was a kid, I used to start putting on my school uniform, forget what I was doing, and then take all my clothes off again, until my mum found me standing naked, staring blankly into the mirror. To my surprise, she had the exact same childhood anecdote of standing naked in her bedroom, forgetting what she was meant to be doing. She told me I should try laying out my clothes before I go to sleep. Turns out, the Pomodoro technique doesn't really help me. But laying out my clothes does help, and so does talking to people who understand what I'm going through. This week, we have two stories about finding people who not only support you, but also understand you. In our first story, Ivy takes us to Steminist, a book club for scientists to share not just their love of science books, but solutions and solidarity about the challenges for women working in research over glasses of wine, cups of tea, and gin in teacups. Hello! <laughs> People are just filtering in, so make yourself comfortable. <laughs> I'm already comfortable here. <laughs> it is espresso cup, but it's got gin in it, so... <laughs> I couldn't find the glass. <laughs> Dad, you didn't let that stop. Yeah, my three-year-old's fell asleep about four minutes ago, so... <laughs> sorry, I'm just making a cup of tea, so I'm self about it. It's all right. <laughs> Don't be sorry. Hi, Annie, we're just doing introductions. Um, oh, fabulous. Hi, everyone. Oh, I'm in Majami, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Steminist, a meeting equal parts science book club and community. Everyone is welcome. All you need is a love of reading, an interest in supporting gender equality for women in STEM. That stands for science, technology, engineering, mathematics and medicine. Yeah, I'm Miranda Thompson. I'm based at Monash in Melbourne. It's Evelyn DePlasis. So I'm Karen Lamb. Hi, I'm Jessica. Um, Jess, Jessie, any of the above is all good. Hi, I'm Jane. I'm from Monash Uni. I'm a pharmacologist, uh, run a lab, got NHMRC grants, lucky me, got lots of students, I'm under a lot of pressure. Yeah, no, life's good and uh, it's nice to be part of this. The word STEMnist is actually a mashup between STEM and feminist and I wanted to visit the book club, not just because I'm an absolute bookworm and the idea of meeting fellow book lovers makes me absolutely giddy. I wanted to get an even broader perspective outside my personal bubble. My own memories of being a researcher years ago are some of the best and worst years of my life. And I still see a lot of the same issues echoed when I talk with scientists in my current job. I wanted to learn more in depth what was happening. I work in public health in evidence synthesis methods, working slash doing a PhD. My research is membrane biophysics or, you know, biophysical chemistry. I'm a consultant biostatistician, so I work at ANSTO, Australia's Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. The book they are discussing tonight is a little different. Instead of a science book, it's Women in Leadership by Julia Gillard, the first woman to ever serve as Australia's Prime Minister. 
and economist Ngozi Onkonjo-Iweala, sharing the experience and advice from women leaders such as politicians Jacinda Ardern and Hillary Clinton. People like it. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Also know some insider information that Miranda once worked for Julia Gillard. So, <laughs> so I'm curious to hear what you thought about the book. Yeah, I, I worked for Julia for about five minutes, um, about 20 years ago. So I was an advisor to her when she was shadow health minister. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed working with her. She's incredibly smart and funny and the kind of person explain in a lift why the difference between contracting hepatitis C through sex versus blood transfusions um, is important in a political sense and then she'll go out into the courtyard and do a press conference on it and totally nail it, which was really fun. It's a great book to read. I actually sent it as care packages to a couple of people who were in ISO. So without a a message and then I got the, was this from you? Since it began in 2018, Steminist has grown to become an online community to support members through the ups and downs of research. Listening in to the book club, you really get a snapshot of the various difficulties, sacrifices, and also the hope each person has for the future of women in STEM. Come with me, Ivy, and we'll just show you the structure. Associate Professor Carolyn Ford is an ovarian cancer researcher. For me, it's all about curiosity. So I just have always been interested in science since I was a little kid. And I actually did really badly in my undergraduate degree at uni. I had a great time at uni and a great time living in Sydney. But I didn't feel engaged in those early years of science. I struggled through. And when I got to about third year, when I started to do science subjects where I could see an impact on health and on people, and it wasn't just all theoretical, that's what hooked me in. So I started learning about microbiology biology and virology and diseases and how they could be actually understood and then combated, I suppose, by clever scientists. And that just was incredibly thrilling to me. So I went on to to study further and looked at viruses and cancer and then ended up looking at cancer and then looking particularly at women's cancers. Caroline is also one of the co-founders of Steminist. It's a bit of a ridiculous origin story because it was completely by accident and not by design at all. It was really just that I love reading, Uh, I'm a a scientist, I am a feminist, and a number of things kind of converged to be able to bring all of those interests together. One summer holiday, Carolyn had just finished reading a book about sexism in research, and Carolyn found out on social media fellow scientist Professor Renee Ryan had finished reading it as well. So I had all these ideas and thoughts about it, but no one to discuss it with. So at this stage, I had never met Renee in real life. But so I, I liked her tweet and, um, and then, you know, commented, oh, you know, I just read that book as well. Isn't it amazing? And she actually responded and said, yeah, it's wonderful. You know, maybe we should have a chat about it. Wouldn't it be fun to do it over a glass of wine? And then this sort of idea for a, a book club sort of came from that. The book club now has more than four and a half thousand members from 30 countries. When I visit her, she shows me around her lab. Uh-huh. These are some cells from ovarian cancer patients. I might take them to the microscope and have a look. And also tells me how it all began. 
think Steminist Book Club members have found perhaps some solace is just realising that there is this group of like-minded women that are going through similar challenges, but also similar joys and delights in their career in STEM and being able to have someone that truly understands what it's like. So that just gets it, gets the situation, understands and also can provide advice like, yeah, this is what I did in that situation or this is how I negotiated that tricky challenge or this is a suggestion I made. So it's that ability, I think, to be really supportive of each other and really open and honest with the reality of what it's like to be a woman in STEM in 2020. Back at the book club, you can hear the group reflecting on their own experiences on how they made their start in science. But you can also get a sense of how career in this world can start or stop at an early age. Like my father's in the military and was quite conservative, but we were still completely raised with this idea of being really high achievers and trying our best and we could absolutely do anything and feeling very supported and able to discuss anything at the dinner table. And when they when they brought that up as a kind of theme that ran throughout all these women leaders, it's not something I'd considered before. I found that quite exciting. I'm really curious about STEM leaders and, and like all of you, if that is something that you experienced when you were growing up or not, or is it the opposite? I think I have, I'm probably an interesting mix of nature versus nurture and and having both actually, having both no bad role models or bad influence and good ones. My dad was not a very pleasant person. He was very misogynistic, a lot of domestic violence. And so we left when I was six. So I was raised by a single mother with an intellectual disability. So I had to fend for myself pretty early. And for me, education or STEM became the one thing I'm good at and the one thing that I knew I could do. And so it gave me a sense of self-worth. But I think what really came out in the book is you have someone that really tells you you can do what you want. If you don't have the supportive environment, and that's just my experience, it takes can take you years to, to build confidence. I think privilege is a big one. And I really had that driven home for me once I was having a conversation with a friend of mine I went to primary school with who comes from, I guess, a less privileged family than I do. And she said to me, you know, oh, Jess, you know, I would have loved to have become a, a scientist, but I never cho- wanted to choose that career path because it didn't have enough stability. Like I didn't know whether I'd be able to get a good job and get a good wage with that job. So I never chose that path. And that's not something that I even thought about when I was, you know, choosing a university degree. Like, am I going to be able to get a stable job out of this? It was just, I like doing science. When talking with Caroline in the lab and sitting in at the book club, you can clearly hear the pride everyone has in their work. But bleeding into it all is frustration and misgivings at the long list of hard decisions they had to make to even stay. Many people work in countries where there aren't huge budgets associated with research jobs, so trying to deal with that tension of being absolutely passionate and curious scientists or engineers, but actually not seeing a career pathway that is sustainable or secure in any way. And I think particularly for a lot of women, um, our members range in age from sort of PhD students to very, very senior professors. So there's a huge range, but we do have a lot of women in their sort of 20s and 30s and early 40s that are thinking about family options and, and what they actually want their life to look like and how they want to incorporate different aspects of their life. And so I think a common topic is kind of grappling with what is a career in STEM where you want to do something outstanding and follow your drive and curiosity, but also have a life outside of STEM, whatever that might mean for the individual. 
as Caroline shares that with me. She adds it's a situation made even worse by the COVID-19 pandemic, especially for younger researchers. Not only have I observed it, but actually there's been quite a few studies that have come out actually documenting this. So the thing I find most alarming is the reduction in um, submissions to journals by gender. So there seems to be a significant dip in papers being authored by women actually being submitted during this period of time. You would have to assume that that could be the same with grant applications and therefore, you know, papers and grants are what propels people's careers forward in this sector, particularly for colleagues in Melbourne that had a really protracted hard lockdown in Australia and literally had their lab shut down for long periods of time. If you're a lab-based researcher and you cannot be productive working from home to the level that you would be if you're in the lab, that's going to hugely affect people's track record. At the book club, Evelyn made the decision to move to a different state. If we are open about the fact that there are different ways of being an academic, and I know the system is still brutal, I could not have a job in, in a year when my contract runs out, but at least people to be honest about their struggles. It always looks so smooth. I could say that, and then I took this Chancellor's Fellowship at UTS because I wanted to be a group leader. No, I was two months out of having no contract and I had to decide to take this job when it meant leaving my husband back in Perth again. I didn't want to move to Sydney, <laughs> but I had to choose between leaving academia and taking the offer I had. And now that means I haven't seen my husband for seven months, thanks to the Premier. The book club, Carolyn says, offers a realistic cross-section of the sheer diversity of the type of people and careers they have, whether in academia or even those who left it. Many people don't realise that when they enter the field, and that can be quite isolating. When I kind of came back from overseas and was a young postdoc, and all I could see was women leaders that didn't have any kids and I knew I wanted to have kids and women leaders that worked seven days a week and I didn't want to work seven days a week. I had other things I wanted to do and women leaders that were really serious and I wanted to have a laugh about things and just not recognising any role models that looked like me. In my role in academia, it's very, very different as a consultant statistician than, I guess, a traditional academic. And so you're made to feel if you're not following this particular trajectory that you're not getting anywhere. And if you're not constantly doing all of X, Y, Z that these professors that have managed to stay within the system have managed to do, this whole survivor bias that we deal with all the time, kind of is one of the reasons I really struggle with the academic system and often question myself. I think at some point I just personally had this underlying subconscious expectation that at some point the higher up you go, it will stop but then it will never stop. Maybe backlash might even get worse the longer or the higher you're in power, something like that. And I think because we're all aware of it, like I think they're an equally growing power which is pushing against it. I also started to wonder if I had found a community like Steminist, seeing, listening and surrounded by people with very different career paths but similar motivations, Would it have prepared me for the realities of research better, made leaving easier, or even perhaps giving me a bit more confidence to stay? I liked that summary chapter where they have their eight rules, their eight lessons learned, and the start of it was to be aware but not beware. I I liked that idea because it's something I think a lot of us struggle with. I know Karen and I have chatted about it. When you do become seen as a leader or a role model in STEM and you do a lot of work of encouraging young women and girls to pursue STEM careers and then at the same time you are absolutely aware of 
the challenges that that career entail, it's a really, I've, I've found it over the years really difficult. Like how brutally honest should you be with your honours and PhD students and encouraging, you know, even younger girls to study STEM when you know that there's still massive structural issues. You don't want to turn people off. So I don't want to be super negative all the time to junior people, but I think you also have to arm them with the information and not sugarcoat that this is going to be this ideal smooth path. Uh, I and guess you've got to hope that by encouraging diver- more diversity into STEM careers, you're going to help fix some of those structural yep. problems, right? Back at Carolyn's office, she says that is her biggest hope. Just that they wouldn't have to put up with this absolute rubbish, you know, that you only see a model of one type of a successful person in your sector. You're always going to feel like you don't belong. And so I think what I would hope for the next generation is essentially that my generation evolves to become that role model for them. That means that younger men and women see that actually a scientist can be a whole range of different types. That story was produced by Ivy Shee. The supervising producer was Britta Jorgensen. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. All the Best is a place for storytellers to learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you'd like to produce a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In March of this year, Australia shut its borders to temporary residents returning from overseas. Many of them still can't come back to Australia. Fiona and Killian were temporary visa holders themselves before they became Australian citizens and saw themselves in the people stranded overseas. Without doubt, and I'm going to try really hard not to cry, it's been the worst, most bizarre three months of my entire life. I can't begin to describe what that day felt like. The outbreak soon predicted to become a pandemic. A travel ban will be placed on all non-residents, non-Australian citizens coming to Australia. You feel like you don't belong anywhere now. So I've been living out of a suitcase for three months. Hi, Bettina. How are you going? Hi. Hi, Bettina. Can you hear us okay? Does it it sound okay? Sounds good. Uh, I'm Killian. And this is my co-producer, Fiona. Nice to meet you. For the last three months, Bettina has been stranded in Budapest. Bettina is originally from Canada. She's been living in Sydney and was sponsored to work here by her Australian employer. She, like many people living and working in Australia, is a temporary visa holder. There are over two million temporary visa holders here. Bettina was outside of Australia when the borders were shut and she wasn't allowed to board her return flight back. Her husband, her home and her life are in Sydney. The only way she can get back is with a special exemption. These are only granted under exceptional circumstances or to those employed in what the government considers to be a critical job. We found out that we're expecting our first child. It should be our happiest moments of our lives and it's not. Um, Yeah, my my husband found out via video chat and um, it's not easy. (laughs) 
well, as you can tell, my accent, I'm originally from Scotland. So um, I thought I'd come back uh, middle, well, beginning of March um, to come and visit my uh, some friends and family, actually. It was for two and a half weeks, and within a week and a half, um, I got caught um, stuck. Callum should be in Western Australia, where he works with vulnerable young people in remote communities. His room in Perth lies empty. His personal belongings, exactly how he left them four months ago. Callum, like Bettina, is a temporary visa holder. And we met Callum through a Facebook support group. I think the support I've got from there has been brilliant. And if I didn't have that support, I'd be lost. One of the founders of that Facebook group is Charlotte. She normally lives in Melbourne, but she's been stranded in the UK for months. I have to say, without having this Facebook messenger group of of people going through the same thing, there is no way I'd still be, you know, fighting to get back. I think I just sort of given up months ago. Visa holders like Charlotte have been given no indication of when they might be able to return. I was calling the Australian embassy in London asking them for advice. So I'm a TSS 482 visa. Can I go back? And they said, do you normally reside in Australia? To which I answered, yes. And they were like, absolutely, madam, you can board the flight, you can go back. So right from day one, when we were desperately seeking information, we were told, well, incorrect information, the fact that we would be able to board our flights. And ever since then, really, there's been little to no direct communication. How are these cases not compelling and worthy of compassion? We simply have no way of knowing why the government is rejecting these claims. That was Deputy Greens leader, Senator Nick McKim, speaking in the Senate. He is one of the few politicians speaking on behalf of temporary residents. He says, if they have established lives in Australia, let them come home. We spoke to him over Zoom. Um, you know, we're a country in large part built on migration and some of uh, the best things in uh, in Australia's recent history have been delivered uh, by people that have migrated here from, from other parts of the world. Senator Nick McKim feels this is a humanitarian concern. For me, th- this issue uh, encapsulates um, something much bigger than politics because it actually encapsulates um, things like families, um, things like you know, building a life somewhere and then being denied the opportunity to to come back home and resume that life. And they are, um, you know, broad human issues that that go far beyond politics. Samarine's husband can't get back to Australia. She lives in the Northern Territory with her two sons. He's a tax accountant and has applied for eight unsuccessful exemptions – the children haven't seen their father for five months. My younger son, he is very, very depressed and uh, he started nail biting so badly and I was literally crying. I mean, I can feel that what he's going through, then he did something like that. Uh, we had a Ramadan and Eid last month and this is the first time we were separated like this and it's a big festival for like for you, it's a Christmas or Easter or something. It's big festival for us, but... Trust me, I mean, like, it was the worst Ramazan, I can say, because we were just praying and crying that when this thing will finish. One person we did meet through the group who successfully obtained an exemption is Alex, a senior doctor living in Perth. Alex was in the UK visiting her father in May. He was sick and sadly passed away. When we moved, you know, it's really hard to leave 
your family behind and it's really hard to leave an unwell um, family member behind but I'd always sort of justified it and, and made peace with it um, and of course nobody ever envisaged a world where you couldn't fly and, and borders were closed. Although Alex's exemption was successful, it took three weeks. It also took a federal MP to get the application moving. I'm delighted Alex is back. That's Ufak, Alex's husband, and a fellow doctor. I'd like to say that once she gets out, we'll just slip back into normal routine. WA's opening up now and things are starting to get back to normal. But I think we're going to spend a few months questioning things a little bit. But it has, has unsettled us a little bit. I am quite annoyed we had to go to, to get an MP. Some people did receive approval to return to Australia. Good guys. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm just uh, in the midst of getting everything sorted. I'm travelling out uh, tomorrow, going down to London. And then from London on Monday, I'm flying out to Perth. Callum received good news this morning. An email telling him he can return to Australia. Um, when I read it, I read it about 10 times, not wanting to check anything else, just on the basis that the exemption was legit. And then as soon as I got it, as soon as I, I was able to process it, bear in mind it was six o'clock in the morning, I was over the moon. Several weeks later, we contacted Sam Rain again. She didn't have good news to report. Her husband still hasn't made it back to Australia she had a message for Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He's a family man, I can say. He, he's worried about his holidays and spending time with his families and all that. So I would say that, yeah, you should think about other families as well. Thank you so much. You let us in, in your country. But we are not like, we are not coming like without anything or without any purpose or anything. You need us as well. And we are really bagging. I'm sure they are seeing our tweets and uh, tweets and everything. They, they are seeing, they know what is going on. But why you are ignoring? How you can ignore someone like this? This is so unfair. We are spending our money. We are doing everything. It's helping Australia's economy. And this is what you are doing with us. Samreen said she would apply one last time. Callum planned to be away from Perth for two weeks, but it took him four months to get back after a number of his previous applications were declined. Most of the people we spoke to think that the whole exemption process has been badly managed. Why was Callum's job only considered critical on his ninth application? Ufak, Alex's husband, had this to say. The people on the other end of this process, I don't believe they have any guidelines with which they're working. I think it's completely random. We've had we've had contact from, I'm sure you've spoken to Callum. Callum's a youth mental health worker, which on, on the face of it isn't necessarily what you might say is a senior medical specialist skill. Callum's the person that they speak to every day. He's the person that keeps them going. He's the person that stops some of these people from harming themselves. Who is it that has the knowledge in the Border Force Department to determine whether he's an important person or not? Nobody. That's pissed. That really pisses me off. We reached out to experts working in the migration industry to get their thoughts. Anka Sahin is a senior consultant at True Blue Migration Services. He's the former president of the Migration Institute of Australia's Victoria and Tasmania branch. 
my understanding is the department has been uh, really overwhelmed with um, requests for exemptions through their portal. Um, apparently, they get about 20,000 per week. So it's a, it's a massive number. And, um, and I, I think they're really struggling to, um, to keep on top of things. Do you think there's perhaps a lack of appetite, like politically, to, to raise this issue and really push, push the matter? As usual, I don't think there's anything in it for the government uh, where it concerns temporary visa holders. Obviously, they're not voters. So the only time the government is interested is, um, is if, it, um, if it extends to partners of Australian citizens or permanent residents. And it's not just temporary residents who are battling with the exemption process. In terms of the inability of Australians to be able to depart and come back where where they have partners and family overseas or they have other compelling, compassionate reasons to to to, to, to want to go, go overseas, there doesn't seem to be much uh, support for that either. So where does that leave these temporary visa holders now? Samreen contacted us regarding her husband's latest application, and it was also rejected. Alex is back to work at the hospital. She and her husband, Ufak, are settling back into normal life. Callum has returned to his position as a youth mental health worker. He's lost some shifts at work, but he's glad to be back in Perth. Charlotte is still in the UK, but continues to be an active member of the Facebook group. Bettina, pregnant and stranded in Budapest, gave up on Australia and returned to Canada with her husband. Thanks to Senator Nick McKim, the Border Force Commissioner has committed to reviewing the travel exemption guidelines. But at the time of recording this, little has changed for the majority of temporary visa holders. Australia's borders remain closed and thousands of temporary residents remain locked out. That story was produced by Fiona Mayers and Killian Keating for the CBAA's National Features and Documentary Series, with supervising production from Linda McCaffrey and training from the CMTO. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney, in association with SIN and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Ryan Pemberton. Mel Chun is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinators are Chloe Gillespie and Danny Stewart. Our SIN Community Coordinator is Lee Robinson. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>